know somebody approached me coming into church this morning and said, are we going to hear a report about our team that went to Turkey? Yes, you are. Uh, they arrived here early this morning. I can't tell you what time, but that's why they're not here uh, with us today. But there were two people that didn't make it back. That was Pastor David and Lisa Callahan. Uh, I got a text from David on Friday saying, looks like you're preaching for me on Sunday. Uh, we've contracted COVID, tested positive. And so I wrote back to him yesterday and I said, are you in quarantine? How long do you have to be over there? He said, well, we're not exactly in quarantine. We can go where we want to, and the worst is over with. It's not like it is in the United States, but we still have to test negative before we get on the airplane. So he said, pray for our options. Now, I'm not sure I know what the options are, but there are, it sounds like there were more than one. But I'd like us to just pause before I preach this morning to pray for David and Lisa that whatever those options are, that they'll open, that they'll test negative, they'll be on that plane even sooner than they thought they would and be back with us. So let's pray. Father, it seems like Pastor David and Lisa are so far away from us, and yet we know by faith you are with them just as much as you're here with us. So as we speak to you this morning, we'd ask you, Lord, to just put your loving arms around both of them over there in Turkey this morning. Reassure them. Let them know that you're with them at all times. They can count on you. And then work out the opening of doors that will allow them to get back even sooner that others who hear the story will be able to say that had to be a God thing. God had to be involved in that. And so, Lord, we just pray for their recovery back here, that everything will go smoothly, and you'll be honored in that whole story. So be with each one of us as we pray for David and Lisa that good will come out of this. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, Omar, thank you for your story. I've got a story, too. I, uh, those of you who are probably 40 and over, maybe 45, have heard of Chuck Colson. He became uh, Mr. Prison Chaplain uh, for the whole United States and probably became more involved in prison ministry than anybody I can think of this morning. And he wrote a book entitled The Body. And it had a lot of stories in it about missionaries. And I want to tell one of those stories as a lead-in to my message this morning. I'm going to be preaching from 1 John chapter 3. I'll tell you the verses when it's time uh, to read that. But I want to tell you a story about a man by the name of Maximilian Colby. Uh, he was 45 years of age. He lived in Poland. He started a, a monastery in 1927. And so at 45, it's 1939. The monastery has grown over the last 12 years. In fact, it's the largest monastery in the world. 
It had 732 priests and lay brothers. In February of 1939, the Nazi Blitzkrieg began, and they could hear airplanes flying over the monastery heading toward Warsaw every single day. And that went on for about 17 days until Maximilian and his other priests were attacked, so to speak, from the SS Nazis. And they arrested 730 of the 732 priests and took them to a nearby prison. They stayed there about two or three weeks, then they were allowed to come back. So now all 732 are together. And at that point, Maximilian began teaching them something that he'd been teaching for about 12 years, maybe longer than that, but he needed to emphasize it now because it was a different day in Europe. And so he began teaching holiness. Another term for that is sanctification. It's our own spiritual growth we start out as a baby Christian and we grow to become an adult Christian. And it's a process. It happens over a period of time. Some people don't realize it because nobody tells them once they're saved. They might say to them, like I did, what's next? There's got to be more. But nobody was able to tell me and maybe nobody was able to tell some of you this morning. But there is more, and so he began to teach his priests about holiness or sanctification. One day, he went up to the whiteboard, if they had one. Probably it wasn't. It was probably a blackboard. And he wrote up there, a small W equals a capital W. And I'm sure the priests looked at him like, what in the world does that mean? He said to them, the small W represents man's natural will, what man wants. The capital W stands for the will of God. And when those two connect, we have the cross. And when we have the cross, we have a total commitment to Christ. And he taught them that day after day after day. And it went on for about, from what I could tell, 13 or 14 months. And one day the SS came back to him and arrested him and took him off again. This time he was found guilty of publishing unapproved literature. Now, you probably need to know this. Uh, he had a radio station in the monastery and they say his audience was about a million people uh, in Europe. He also published a lot of materials each and every week, and they went out to thousands and thousands of people. So now he's been found guilty of publishing this unapproved literature. And they send him to the concentration camp that you've heard about all your life. What a bad place to go to. Auschwitz. His body was weak. He'd had lean rations the whole time he was organizing the monastery. He had done pretty good labor, 
And so his body, even at 45, was not in as good a shape as maybe another 45-year-old. Then they put him at hard labor at Auschwitz, and one day he passed out. And they picked him up and threw him over the wood pile that he was working on, and they beat him almost to death. Then they took him and threw him in a shallow hole and covered it with branches and left him to die. By the grace of God, he survived that whipping, and he was able to return to his barracks with the other prisoners. Then one day, the commandant came to their barracks. It was barracks number 14. And he said to the men, the fugitive, so apparently there was somebody who had escaped, the fugitive has not been caught. So I'm going to single out 10 men. It will cost you your life taking the place of the fugitive. Well, all of a sudden, one of the men began to weep. And he said, my wife, my children, what are they going to do? And he began to weep uncontrollably. All the men are lined up. They've been standing outside in the hot sun all day long. Some had passed out. They were hit with the gun butts of the soldiers' rifles. Some didn't make it. Some did. But as they're lined up still in the late afternoon, there was a man that stepped out from the back of the line. Yep, you guessed it. It was Maximilian. And he began to walk toward the commandant. Now, folks, you've got to know this. Nobody broke ranks when they were in a concentration camp. Nobody approached a Nazi officer to speak to them unless they were spoken to. And he kind of walked a short distance up to the commandant, and he said to him, I would like to take the place of one of the ten. And the commandant looked at him and said, why? And he said, well, I'm an old man. I'm not in great physical shape. I'm of no use to anybody. Take my life instead of one of those. Now, as weak as he was, that was his ploy. He wanted the commandant to then say, which one do you, would you like to replace? And you can guess the commandant did that very same thing. Which one do you have in mind to replace? And he said, the man who spoke up so worried about his family, his children, his wife, that's who I'd like to take his place. The commandant then stepped closer to him, looked him right in the eye for the last time, and he said, who are you? And he said to him, I'm a Catholic priest. And they hauled him away with the other nine who were destined to die. And they took them to barracks 11, and they put them in the basement of 11. You'll never believe what Barracks 11 basement was. It was the starvation pit. And when you were put down there, you were not even given water. And if somebody lasted two days, they were fortunate. And the guards told them that as they entered that basement of Barracks 11. Usually, the prisoners would cry out as they were dying. 
They'd claw at the walls of the basement. They would sometimes even try to fight with each other, although that never quite got anywhere. But on the second day, the guards began to hear singing from down in the basement. It was those ten men singing. All the men before that had done all these awful things, but they didn't have a leader. And this group of ten had a leader in Maximilian. Well, about a day later, the music began to get less and less and less till it was almost a whisper. And so they went down to check. They turned on their flashlights. They saw four men left. One of them was Maximilian. The other three were unconscious, probably that close to death. And then there was Maximilian. And he was sitting propped up against the wall with his head leaned over, kind of cocked to one side, and staring off into space. I wonder what he was looking at. Maybe one day we can ask him. Maybe he was looking at the Lord himself. But about that time, a doctor came in, stepped down into the basement. He had four syringes with him. He looked over at the three who looked like they were almost dead. He went to them first. They died. Then fourthly, he went over to Maximilian and gave him a shot, and he died. Now, what's that story saying to us? Colby did not have a death wish. He wanted to follow Christ, and if he had to give his life for Christ, for somebody else, he was willing to do that. Years and years later, I guess when the body was written, the relative of the man who survived told the story and how Colby went through so much to finally take the place of his loved one. He wanted to do what Christ desired him to do. Over in 1 John... I want to read part of chapter 3. Uh, it'll be starting in verse 11. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Verses 12 through 16 give us a contrast of two lives. 
It's the life of Cain and the life of Jesus. Cain murdered his brother for selfish motives, for what he could gain. It was all about him. Jesus, the sinless one, died for every person like you and me. He gave his all. There was nothing left to give. God the Father gave his son. He was the one who gave everything that he had. And then Jesus gave his life. Now, how do we live out life with love just not only sprinkled through it, but growing viciously in our lives? How does it play out? How does our life show love in action? You know, we live in a world of self-love today. It's a life all about me. If you listen to your TVs, watch some ads on TV, everything pinpoints down to you, down to me. It's as if they're sending us a signal that it is all about you. Not only would this be good for you, it's what you would want and what we want to have for you. And I'm not talking about just advertisement. It's in all programming. It's in every publication that you might read. It's all about me. Human life has no value to the sociopath. They have no empathy. They don't care about anything. They're not remorseful over anything. They could take the life of your college-aged daughter and not feel anything where your life would be falling apart. They could do something as simple as removing your catalytic converter and not feel a thing about it. I heard just this past week that there's somebody in the Houston area who's been doing this since the first of the year, and they've made already $400,000. They don't care. Banks are being robbed in the middle of the day. Imagine that. It hasn't happened to this scale probably since back in the 1800s. People just don't care about life or the things that you might have uh, in life. Verse 16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren do you think John got that at a moment of inspiration do you think he got that as he was crafting a sermon no he heard that direct, directly from the Lord Jesus he heard those words from him and it sunk into his very heart, and he began to live that way. You notice all the forms today of love? Love has just, people say, I love everything. I love this. I love that. I love him. I love her. I love doing this. We've gotten to the point where we've diluted that word down to where it's almost empty. It doesn't mean what it meant, say, 50 years ago. It's different today. It reminds me of a 
chromosomal mutation of an orga organism. Now, I better explain that a little bit. We all have chromosomes in, we, in us, don't we? In every cell in our body. And some people have an extra chromosome, and it causes problems. Probably the biggest mutation that I'm thinking about that changes things happens in a Down syndrome baby. It doesn't mean they can't live a life. It just means there's something that's changed in their chromosomes and therefore they came to life in that way. Doctors can tell that now way ahead of time where they couldn't at one time. But it's a chromosomal mutation. It can happen in a lot of different things that have life. I think what I want to say to you now is how, how do we show in our lives love in action? I think there's two ways, and I'm going to hit those uh, very quickly. First of all, sacrifice. If you and I know what sacrifice is all about and we're willing to do that, others will see love in action in us. Uh, I'm not going to read verse 16 again, but I'm going to refer us to that verse. Jesus was ready to give his life for us. Not just ready, though, he did it. He fulfilled that which he was sent to do. Um, I think that idea is foreign to us today. You don't have any friends or neighbors who have had their life threatened because of their faith. But it's happening in different parts of our world. I think we might be foolish to think that it could never happen here. It might in the future. Right now, we feel safe, even though we see a world crumbling all around us. Sometimes we get the idea it's crumbling within. Uh, back when I was about 17, there was a woman by the name of Gladys Kidd, K-I-D-D. -D. And Gladys Kidd had a husband who'd been sentenced to death in the gas chamber, and he was innocent. Uh, Gladys worried about that constantly. Finally, one day, she put an ad in her local paper, and the ad said, I'm looking for an attorney that can represent my husband. He's going to have to be good. My husband's innocent. And in return, I will serve the attorney and his family for 10 years as cook, housekeeper, cleaner, whatever that family needs. An attorney contacted her almost immediately, and he said, I would like to represent your husband. And in a second trial, they found him totally innocent. Gladys now knew she owed this man 10 years of her life. But the attorney came to her and said, I don't want your 10 years of service. I'm just glad that I could help somebody who was innocent become free. Wow. That says a lot. A woman who was willing to give up 10 years of her life to see her innocent husband freed. I wonder if we'd be willing to sacrifice, to give up something that was precious 
to us. Maybe it wouldn't be 10 years of service to somebody, but some of you are thinking what it could be for you right now. It might be something like that. Could I give something like that to somebody else? It's precious to me. Maybe it would be precious to them as well. And the last thing, not only a sacrifice, but a response will show the love of Christ in each one of us, and it'll come out in love. Uh, Verse 17 out of the New American Standard reads, But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If he has the world's goods. In the English Bible, it doesn't say world's goods. It says material possessions. I'm going to turn over to Mark chapter 12. You don't have to turn with me. I just want to read a couple of verses. It's a great little story. It says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to about a cent. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributions to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all the owned, all she had to live on. All she had. The rich gave out of their reserve. You know, I think we often do that. We give out of what's left over. We say to ourselves, I know there's a great need out there, and I've got some extra money left over. I think I could give them. You know, if enough people did that, it would probably help a company who was a nonprofit, probably help them a great, great deal. Our story says people like the Pharisees were unloading large amounts of money into the temple treasury. But the woman gave two coins that were worth a cent, or what I'm finding out, even less than a cent. But it was all that she had. Uh, I'm going to kind of close with a story about a hen and a pig the hen and the pig, they were walking down the street one day and they passed a church. There was a big sign on the church, big letters like this. It said, help the needy. Help the needy. So the hen looked at the pig and said, I think we could help the needy. I think we could serve them breakfast of eggs and bacon. And the pig looked at him in shock. And he said to the hen, You don't have to worry about much. You're just making a contribution. I'm making a total commitment. Yeah, true. How does a person close their heart and not ever make a total commitment? The Bible just told us then we're really not of God. So I want to close with how do we open our heart. How does that come about? 
It might be something as simple as spending an hour or less with somebody who is so lonely. They need somebody who will listen to them. They need somebody they can vent to, somebody that might be able to give them some simple advice. And I emphasize simple. You don't have to have all the answers. Just somebody that would spend some moments with that person. They would be opening their heart, wouldn't they? Maybe it would be somebody who saw somebody in need outside of a McDonald's, and you're thinking they're just begging money from people. And you ask them, and they just want something to eat. So you go inside and buy them a hamburger and a drink and bring them out to them. They go over and find a table and you see them eating the hamburger and drinking the drink. Something so simple. Something that we could do. Maybe it's taking somebody to the doctor that has no way to get there unless it's somebody outside their family. And they need to be able to go so they quit going to the doctor because they have no way to get there. Opening our hearts. That's all that it takes. Let me ask you something. Where are you this morning? Where are you? Have you ever invited Christ into your life? Would Jesus say, I've made my home in that person's heart? I live there. Have you ever allowed Jesus to change your life completely? He wants to so badly. Maybe a Christian this morning who says, you know, I've never made that total commitment on anything. My faith is strong. I try to be in church regularly. I try to do the things that most other people are doing. But some of the things you've talked about this morning, I've never put my life in that position to do. I'd never heard of holiness. I'd never heard of sanctification. I never knew that I really had to grow beyond the time of my conversion. I never knew that. Maybe for you it's a time to make that commitment. To say to the Lord, I want what I could have had years ago, but it's not too late. Would you take me just like I am and find somebody to help me go through this time in my life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your precious son to die on an old rugged cross for me, for my family, for my friends, for people that I've never even met yet. You did this. You cared enough. You loved us so much. It's hard for us to even put into words. We can't. So thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for the opportunity to live in a free country where freedom is felt, to be in a church like this one where people care and love for each other. Thank you, Lord. Help me to respond to you this morning. Maybe it might sound like this. Dear Lord, forgive me of my sin. Wipe it away as if it had never been there. And then come and live inside of me that I might have the opportunity to live for you. And I will. Lord, I give myself to you. 
That prayer may have sounded something like that. So I'm leaving it up to you and your Holy Spirit, Lord, to do your work as only you can. In Jesus' name.